0: Hello and welcome to Running Need Radio's first episode of 2021, where we are joined by Professor Malcolm Lavoie of the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. Professor Lavoie and our National Director, Mark Mancini, discussed Professor Lavoie's forthcoming article in the University of Toronto Law Journal entitled, The Implications of Property as Self-Government. We thank you for tuning in with us for this new year and invite you to stay tuned in the months ahead as we continue to produce new episodes.
1: Okay, well welcome loyal listeners to today's episode of Runnymede Radio. My name is Mark Mancini and I'm the National Director of the Runnymede Society. This is our first Runnymede Radio episode of 2021, so welcome to the new year. And today we're very lucky to have with us a good friend of the Runnymede Society, Professor Malcolm Lavoie. Uh, from the University of Alberta. And he is here today to talk to us about his uh, paper recently released in the University of Toronto Law Journal uh, entitled, The Implications of Property as Self-Government. So welcome, Professor Lavois, Thanks for taking the time to speak to us today.
0: Hi, Mark. It's Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, I really appreciate the, uh, the invitation and the chance to talk about the paper. That's great.
1: That's great. Well, I really enjoyed reading this paper, and, and for you know us in the Reading Mead Society, we spend a lot of time talking about private or public law issues, rather. But uh, this piece, I think, raises all sorts of interesting private law issues and, and private law theory issues that I think will be of interest to many of our listeners. So, as I mentioned, the article is titled The Implications of Property as Self-Government. Can you explain, just give us a bit of a precy of what the piece is ab- uh, about, and uh, then we'll, we'll get into some more specifics.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. So as you said, it has a private law dimension. I think it's also fair to say it has a public law dimension. Yeah, uh, the title is "The Implications of Property as Self-Government," and and so it starts with the uh, the idea that um, the fact, I suppose, that the state legal systems in Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, um, all of these legal systems conceptualize indigenous territorial self-government as being based largely on property and land. So indigenous groups exercise collective powers based on property interests in land, such as Aboriginal title and statutory property interests. At the same time, especially in Canada and the United States, uh, these groups are are recognized as exercising um, certain regulatory powers, um, but the territorial jurisdiction of those indigenous governments is generally um, delineated or limited by property and land. So um, for instance, in Canada, um, under the Indian Act, the um, jurisdiction of a First Nations band government only extends to reserve lands. And those reserve lands are in turn defined as um, land in which uh, the First Nation has a beneficial interest. Um, if, t- if title to that land is transferred to another party um, through uh, a land surrender, um, then it's no longer under First Nations jurisdiction. So you have this, you have governance powers but they're essentially predicated on land title. Um, and it's important to sort of at the at the outset emphasize that this is an unusual state of affairs. Normally the jurisdiction of a government is independent of land tenure. The, the jurisdiction of the government of Alberta, for instance, doesn't depend on who owns a given parcel of land. If you sell land to someone from Saskatchewan, that land doesn't cease to be part of Alberta. Mm. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a distinctive state of affairs here, where you're using property and land um, as the sort of platform for for collective self government, um, and that 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 distinctive use of property and land as a platform for collective self government um, helps explain a number of distinctive features of this area in law, uh, this area of law, including, I argue, restraints on the alienation of land, restrictions on buying and selling indigenous land. Um, so, just quickly, under these systems. Um, the sale of land to non-members is restricted in part due to the threat that those kinds of sales can pose to the collective capacity of the Indigenous community to govern itself. When you sell oh, yeah. land to outsiders, you diminish um, the, the the capacity of that land base to ser- serve as a locus for a distinctive self-governing community. Um and so I argue that there are a few distinctive recurring features of Indigenous land tenure in these countries, and that they're all more or less linked to this idea that you're using property interests in land as a platform for a self-governing political community. Um, and that leads, and I talk about it in the paper, that leads both to some interesting theoretical discussions on things like the distinction between property and sovereignty, um, mm. as well as some practical um, uh, implications, implications for for legal reform, and and that's that's particularly pertinent because um, reform of these regimes is uh, high on the agenda for, for a lot of indigenous folks. Um, these uh, property regimes are um, it, largely the legacy of uh, colonialism. There's there are some uh, troubling and difficult to justify aspects about them, um, but you know part of the the sort of thinking behind the piece is that if you want to reform them, it first helps to have a good understanding of how they work, the functions they're mm-hmm. serving now, um, so that you can take that into account when you're uh, reforming them. And I should say as well, one of the ideas in in the piece um, is that those reform ef- efforts should be lef- led by uh, Indigenous communities themselves. They're in a better position to understand some of these trade-offs. Very interesting. So is that what sort of motivated you to to write this piece
1: is that you know that there there are practical implications, but we have to sort out some of these theoretical things first was that the motivation
0: Yeah, yeah so my motivation uh uh maybe it was a little mixed or complex so this this started as a chapter of my dissertation so one of my motivations oh. surely was to finish my uh, doctoral dissertation um but uh in all seriousness um you know the motivation was probably pretty similar to the 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 motivation i have when i write uh, most pieces i saw a gap in the literature that i hoped yeah. to to help fill um and that that's that's sort of there's a lot of writing on indigenous peoples and the law um but not a lot of it is is focused on existing um, legal doctrine. Um, and that's for reasons that are relatively easy to understand. Um, there's a, an understandable desire um, on the part of indigenous people to really transcend some of these colonial um, legal structures, yeah. um, and, 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 and I completely understand that. At the same time, these are complex legal regimes. They, they serve a wide range of, of current interests. Um, and it's worthwhile to sort of advance a, a deeper understanding of them, even if that understanding is then simply uh, used as a jumping off point for how to reform these regimes. So um, there's that, that practical dimension, which may be useful for indigenous led reform efforts. Um, at the same time, I think there are some theoretically interesting ideas that come out of this, including when you talk about this, the, the distinction between property and sovereignty.
1: Well, that's a great lead-in to my next uh, my next question, which is I, I think this is sort of a key part, obviously, of the paper. So, can you maybe let's start by can you outline mm-hmm. the difference between uh, what you mean by property in the piece and what you mean by sovereignty?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, this, the the really simple answer is that property is the sort of private authority exercised by owners within a legal system, and and sovereignty is the the public authority of of governments. Um, that that sort of simple answer masks a, a much more uh, complex debate that exists within property theory and a, a sort of branch of, of legal theory um, as to what is the distinction between these two forms of authority. They clearly have some things in common, right? So mm. property property and land and sovereignty are both forms of territorial authority. They both give rise to powers to uh, con- uh, some kinds of powers of control over a physical space. Um, in a provocative uh, article from the early 20th century, the, the, the realist um, legal scholar Mor- Morris Cohen advanced the provocative thesis that property and sovereignty really aren't that different after all. Um, uh, they're really just two forms of power um and that uh the the sort of authority exercised by property owners and the authority exercised by governments are really just um exercises of, of power and they can be reduced uh to that to, to that dimension and he you know cohen had a, a an agenda in in uh, in advancing that thesis um he, he he, you know, he was a a, a sort of progressive uh, reformer, as I understand it, and he wanted to sort of point out that there's sort of nothing sacred about the authority of owners that that it's political uh. power, just like anything else. Um, and, and and so that that paper, um, property and sovereignty, um, has sort of sparked an interesting debate that that continues within property theory, um, as to what is the distinction between the sort of authority exercise the territorial authority exercised by governments um and the authority that uh owners of land exercise um more recently uh certain writers have pointed to a kind of essential essentialist distinction between property and sovereignty so there's recent papers by um uh Larissa Katz and, and Arthur Ripstein uh both yeah. from the University of Toronto where they argue that there's something sort of fundamentally distinctive about these forms of authority basically um, Property is a private form of authority. Um, it uh, there's a sphere of autonomy that owners uh, uh, exercise, subject to regulation by by governments. Um, but within their own sphere, owners uh, are free to to make a range of choices, and, and importantly, they don't have to justify those choices. Um, to to others in the community. By contrast, um, sovereignty um, as a public political form of authority um, requires a public justification for its exercise. It needs to be justified to the people um, who are subject to it. Um, and, and so that that sort of so, those are some points or, or, or in the current debate. Um, where I come in is that I point out in, in the piece um, that property and sovereignty, at least in this area of law, um, the distinction isn't so clean. Um, It it looks more like a spectrum. You have, uh, you know, you, you have property as a concept and sovereignty as a concept. And what's happening in this area of law is some kind of blend of the two. You start with the concept of property and land, and then you build upon it and seem to make it look more and more like um, the public authority exercised by governments, um, and so the 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 sort of interesting sort of, to my mind at least, theoretical idea that comes out of this is that property is being put to a very strange use in this area of law, um, and that it is it is um, blurring the distinction um, between property and sovereignty, and maybe that distinction isn't quite as clean as we might think.
1: Mm. Yeah, that I, that I mean most great papers, I think, start with an insight that's uh, fairly simple to understand. And I, I think that's the insight of this. It's really, it's an intuitive one, uh, but interesting at the same time. So you, you know, I think your main point here relates, uh, at least a point that you make in the paper relates to uh, the function of property interest in land serving to, uh, serving to have this sort of sovereignty function of delineating the territorial authority of, of a self-governing political community. Um, So can you maybe flesh out for our listeners, can you give some examples of how these features of property law, certain doctrinal features of property law can actually end up supporting this type of communal self-government?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, So I identify um, in this paper and and in another um, paper in the McGill Law Journal called Property um, Law and Collective Self-Government, I identify five sort of recurring patterns that exist um, in Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand to to varying degrees um, in the law relating to indigenous property in land. Um, and, And I argue that these recurring features can be explained, at least in part, in terms of the distinctive self-government functions that, that property serves um, in this area of law. So the five recurring patterns or recurring features I identify are alienation restraints. That's the biggest one. Uh, these uh, are special restrictions on the buying and selling of land. Um, there are also distinctive co-ownership rules that tend to facilitate collective governance among co-owners, as opposed to making it easy to uh, partition or, or force a sale of the land. Um, in addition, there's this there's this theme of linking the regulatory power of Indigenous governments to interest in land, sort of making uh, uh, the jurisdiction predicated on on um, property and land. Uh, the fourth is a much greater degree of leeway for um, unique estates in land. So the common law of real property um, restricts the ability of, of uh, parties to create new and distinctive um, forms of property rights. Um, that that tends to be relaxed in this area of law. Um, So there's a greater allowance for those kinds of distinct interests. Um, And finally, the fifth feature, it refers to the special immunities that exist to varying degrees in these countries um, uh, that that, that indigenous property interests have from outside regulation, from outside taxation, Uh. uh, from execution for a judgment. So there's a greater degree of immunity from outside um, interference. Um, in this area of law than there is with respect to uh, normal property interests at common law. Um, and, and so it would take a while to maybe explain all of those, but I think the, the clearest example um, is alienation restraints. Um, yeah. So when you're, when, you're using, um, when you're using property and land as the sort of platform for a distinctive self-governing community, um, a land sale isn't just a land sale. Um, so if you have, for instance, individual members holding interest in land, if they could just freely uh, sell to outsiders, um, it's possible, and, and this has happened um, in the past when alienation restraints have been restricted, it's possible that you'll end up with a checkerboard pattern of land holding where um, you have non-member interests interspersed with member interests. Um, and the fact that jurisdiction is linked to land tenure means that um, the, the territory can become very difficult. To govern, um, you have sort of parcels of land, some of which are under the jurisdiction of the uh, indigenous government, some of which are under the jurisdiction of the uh, non-indigenous government. Um, even even apart from that jurisdictional challenge, there's the practical challenge of um, trying to to maintain a sort of distinctive um, cultural community as a as a minority within a broad a broader state um, where you don't have that sort of locus of a, of a particular um, culture. Um, and so the special the, the sort of special restraints on alienation can today and and they, exi- they I know that they and I talk about this elsewhere, they emerged for a wide range of reasons historically. Um, their persistence I think, is partly explained by the way they can help to uh, preserve a sort of collective um, governance capacity for indigenous communities on a contiguous territory, which serves as the, as the locus for that um, for that community's culture and, and self-government powers, Um, you know, things like special immunities from outside uh, regulation, taxation, execution for judgment. These create a greater degree of security for the collective decision-making authority of the indigenous uh, uh, group. Um, The allowance for unique estates in land, um, allows for different ways um, to sort of ma- uh, ma- do to make the trade-offs here. For instance, well, it, it, it certainly allows for interests in land that reflect the legal traditions of the particular uh, indigenous community, but it also allows for um, uh, distinctive ways of making some of these trade-offs. So, really narrowly tailored alienation restraints. Um, and one of the interesting ideas um, or interesting sort of features that emerges here is that, you know, alienation restraints were imposed in the past for a range of reasons. They weren't necessarily aligned with indigenous interests. However, today, often when indigenous uh, communities have the opportunity to design their own rules of land tenure, they they maintain alienation restra- restraints to some degree. They tend to at least. Yeah. So land codes under the First Nations Land Management Act are an example of this, where you have uh, most communities that adopt a land code. They don't have to, but they choose to preserve certain restrictions on, um, you know, they don't have fee simple titles under the FNLMA, but they do have long-term leasehold interests, for instance, um, and they maintain certain alienation restraints. And that, to me, indicates that from the perspective of indigenous groups, these restraints are serving a purpose. and I think part of that purpose is this maintain, maintenance of the sort of collective uh, decision-making capacity of the community. Um, however, there are more or less less stringent alienation restraints um, that you can have. You can have you know outright prohibitions. You can have a requirement for a community vote. Um, you can have a discretionary approval by the band council. Um, and and you can have uh, restrictions only on very long- term uh, leasehold interests uh, and and not have those kinds of protections for short-term interests. and you can vary that in various ways and, and communities do when they're given the opportunity to design their own rules of land tenure. Um, and so that is partly why um, greater allowance for these unique estates in land is valuable. Um, it also I think indicates that uh, uh, these distinctive features, um, are serving a function that Indigenous communities view as valuable, at least within the paradigm that they're working within, where right. their collective governance capacity is predicated on land tenure.
1: That's, yeah, right. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, to this point, we've outlined, you know, so you've outlined the difference between the, the property and sovereignty uh, distinction in the literature, but you, you're putting it on a spectrum. Uh, and I, you know, we, we've talked about uh, the features of property law that actually might end up supporting uh, type these types of communal self-government i think one part of the paper that I found particularly interesting and I think that many of our listeners w- would find interesting is your discussion of the various forms of uh, liberalism that this kind of theory uh, invites so we've talked already about how property law might encourage or or discourage um, self-governing cultural communities but can you maybe uh, flesh that out a bit more and then uh, link in this discussion of liberalism and the various forms of liberalism that are implicated as we move across this spectrum.
0: Yeah. So one of the other sort of interesting theoretical implications um, of, of of the the ideas in this paper um, relates to how we how we look at the values underlying um, the common law of real property outside of indigenous communities. So I've sort of explained how there's these distinctive features of indigenous land tenure, how they arguably help to um, serve this function of of maintaining collective uh, governance by a distinctive cultural group, indigenous communities. Um, But what's interesting is that those Um, those rules of land tenure don't apply outside indigenous communities. And indeed, um, uh, in in many cases, the common law adopts a position that's diametrically opposed to the position that um, exists with respect to these special rules of land tenure in indigenous communities. So um, you have special restraints of various colors um, uh, in in the context of uh, indigenous land tenure, special restraints on buying and selling land. But the common law's position outside of the indigenous context is like the complete opposite of that, right? So there's a, a, a doctrine um, that prohibits the establishment of restraints on the alien, alienation uh, of land, even if buyer and seller of an interest in land uh, agree to that. Um, there are other um, uh, doctrines that prevent uh, owners from um, creating long-term restrictions on who can... Uh, do something with a particular piece of land, or who can own a land? So own land, such as the rule against perpetuities um, and the numerous clauses principle, which just refers to this idea that you can't create novel interests in land. Uh-huh. Um, and these doctrines, outside of the indigenous context, they make it really hard um, to, uh, for say, a distinctive cultural or religious group to set up a community uh, with individual land titles and make it so that only other members of the community can acquire those interests, right? So the very thing that the legal regimes encourage in the indigenous context, uh, the common law of real property makes very difficult outside of the indigenous context. It would be very Hmm. hard, for instance, for a particular cultural group to set up a, a community with perpetual individual land titles and then say, um, these can only be ali- These can only be transferred in the future to other members of our group, and to try and maintain a land base um, that's only for members of that cultural or religious group. Um, and so, what that tells me is that the common law of real property sort of serves a pur- serves a function of um, kind of facilitating cultural uh. integration, um, making it hard to set up long term um, cultural enclaves. Um, and that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, but it does tend to take a side um, in a debate within liberalism. It sort of reflects certain values. So within liberalism, there's a tension. Um, uh, most recently, I think, highlighted in the work of Jacob Levy um, in his book, uh, uh, Rationalism, Pluralism, and, and Freedom, I think it's called. Um, a, a distinction between, on the one hand, strands of liberalism that, that really emphasize individual autonomy and that view uh, intermediate cultural and religious groups as potential threats to, to individual freedom. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, forms of liberalism that are really, um, uh, oriented towards pluralism, towards tolerating yeah. of different kinds of intermediate groups of that kind. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, if, if, if we're identifying a function for the common law of real property in making it hard to, to, to set up um, persistent uh, sort of cultural enclaves, even when groups maybe decide that's what they want, um, I think it's fair to say that the common law is more tilted towards that individual autonomy, rational right. mode of liberalism, as opposed to a, a pluralist Mode of liberalism, and that's that's a uh, you know that's a persistent um, debate within liberalism. Um, it's not obviously a good or a bad thing, um, but it's interesting to note when um, seemingly technical rules like uh, the rule against restraints on alienation or the rule against perpetuities um, reflect those kinds of value choices, um, and that's one of the ideas that comes out of this paper.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I I for one found that. Uh, really, really an interesting discussion and I, you know I think you've in your answer you've outlined um, how you know the different there, there are diff- depending on the mode of liberalism that we're in there there are trade-offs involved here uh, there are trade-offs involving culture individual autonomy and, and as you mentioned the the value of pr- pluralism and in a previous answer I think you you made the case that indigenous communities uh, themselves are best suited to balance these sorts of values uh, and I you know, I tend to agree, but can you explain why that is and uh, maybe outline any counter arguments as well to that position? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we should say at the outset that indigenous communities um, were historically independent, self-governing communities um, that in many and that in many cases, um, their uh, capacity uh, to uh, Continue uh, governing themselves was impaired in ways that we would regard as unjustified uh, today. For instance, something uh, like the doctrine of discovery is a big example of that. Mm. Um, and and so that that sort of creates a historically grounded uh, sort of justice-oriented argument for indigenous self-government. Um, there are other types of arguments that can be uh, a- advanced. Uh, just you could you could make an argument simply on the basis that um it's it's uh it's it's good and justified to preserve ways of life that 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 um uh collective ways of life that that people uh find themselves find valuable um the the the, the basic argument um uh, that th- that I'm relying on though in saying that well okay we have these rules of land tenure they maybe help serve this collective self-government function, but they may be unjustified in other ways, and certainly in many cases, their legacies of colonialism. So what do we do? Um, the answer is that, you know, reform should be on the table to the extent that Indigenous communities want that. Um, but, you know, should should we sort of pursue sort of bottom-up reform where individual indigenous communities adopt their own uh, approaches, or should we have a sort of sweeping top-down change to these rules of land tenure that apply across the board? Um, I'm more in the former camp, um, and certainly I I provide an argument for that in in the paper. Um, And the argument basically is that, um, you know, the the types of trade-offs we're talking about here, when you're talking about um d- uh, designing rules of land tenure uh with things like restraints on alienation it involves trade-offs among uh a, a wide range of values that are um incommensurable that are difficult uh- to adequately um uh weigh, weigh against one another um so for instance if you're talking about restraints on the buying and selling of interests in land um those restrictions uh, probably give rise to economic inefficiency um, they are prob they probably impair individual autonomy in the sense that individual interest holders are restricted in what they can do and and may be restricted in their ability uh, to sell and leave the community so there's those economic efficiency and individual autonomy values at the same time though um, you know if these types of Uh, restrictions help uphold collective self-governance capacity, then there are other values at stake, including the value of the collective autonomy of the Indigenous community, uh, the ability of the Indigenous community to sort of preserve a land base as a locus for its distinctive culture. And so there's trade-offs between these uh, incommensurable values, and how those trade-offs look will vary from one community to the next, based on um the normative commitments within that community based on that community's own traditions and values and based on the circumstances of the community right um in some communities that are close to urban centers for instance um it may be more challenging to to preserve a sort of uh land base that 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 serves as a distinctive locus for a, for a particular culture whereas for more remote communities there are different challenges that they have to address um, and so you have these incommensurable values, you have circumstances that vary quite a bit among Indigenous communities, and all of that points to the idea that, um, you know, the, the right solution, the quote-unquote right solution, uh, might look very different from one community uh, to the next. Hmm. Uh, and and indeed, when Indigenous communities have been given the opportunity to, to say, design their own rules of land tenure, um, either under self-government agreements or under uh a regime like the first nations land management act they've adopted very different approaches from one to the next some have been for with respect to alienation restraints for instance some have been uh, relatively uh liberal uh, have re- relatively allowed for relatively free alienation at least of long-term leasehold interests and uh perpetual uh member member held possessory interests um, whereas others have been much more restrictive um and and i don't i, I think i think that that that, that's justified potentially by local circumstances and values. Um, and I think that kind of knowledge um, is just not something that's easily um, uh, acquired or acted upon by centralized authorities. Indeed, this is an area of law where in the past, seemingly me- well-meaning um, uh, approaches uh, imposed by centralized authorities... Um, have led to dis- have led to just disastrous consequences mm. um, uh, you know it's 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 it hasn't always been the past you know it, it, in the past um, a lot of the the sort of statutory regimes we're dealing with today were advanced by you know well-meaning folks who just didn't understand what was important to the communities they were affecting didn't understand how they how they were going to affect those communities and indeed couldn't have right Um, It's just not possible for centralized authorities to to really properly understand the implications of uh, sort of fundamental changes to things like tenure in diverse um, communities. And so anyway, uh, all that sort of is to say that I think that um, we should, uh, you know, in in terms of what changes should be made to rules of land tenure by, say, Parliament um, or Congress in the United States, I think they should really be heavily tilted towards opt-in reforms, where indigenous communities can can choose to opt in or not. Um, they should and they should be really uh, tilted towards um, uh, reforms that devolve institutional design powers to uh, communities themselves to to do things like sort of really design their own rules of land tenure as opposed to simply um, devolving authority within the existing regime. Hmm, yeah. So, that, I mean, that was sort of my uh, my final question
1: to you was about the the implications for legal reform. And I I think you sort of touched on that. So you you talked about the opt in reforms, uh, which you outlined. Could you just explain that a bit more for yeah. our, our listeners and what uh, how how that's uh, perhaps a better option for legal reform?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, th- and this has been within Canada, at least this has been. Uh, the The norm in recent decades in terms of uh, changes um, within uh, uh, sort of statutory frameworks at least. Um, so the Indian Act rules of land tenure continue to apply as as a default um, on reserve lands. Um, however, there's a, a number of ways where communities can opt out of that into something that they've designed themselves um and and so the first nations land management act is one example where um, a pretty a, a pretty wide range of authority uh you know what if once a community um uh adopts a code they can do quite a bit in terms of you know they can't allow for freely alienable fee simple interests um but, oh. but my, my understanding is that um you know m- many communities don't want that um uh, but they can allow for a wide range of leasehold interests, including long-term leasehold interests, perpetual possessory interests that can only be held by members of the community. Um, And there's a lot of sort of interesting uh, approaches that communities have taken. I think uh, there are dozens of communities that now uh, have opted out of the the Indian Act land tenure regime and operate under the First Nations Land Management Act. Um, Other mechanisms uh, for fundamental land tenure reform within a community include, um, uh, a comprehensive land claims agreement, which recognizes self-government authority. So the Nishka are an example of that, where they've done something mm. very distinctive. Um, they they indeed have uh, you know individually held fee simple titles, but uh, on a very different model of of self-government. Um, they their their self-government is effectively uh, over a defined territory, independent of land tenure. Uh, so it's really a model of federalism. Very different from how self-government is recognized um, in in the in, in the indigenous context um, elsewhere uh, in, mo- in in most of the countries under study uh, or or in the countries under study in most in most cases um, and uh, uh, standalone self-government agreements are also another mechanism for communities to um, uh, go their own way in terms of mm. uh, rules of land tenure um, and 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 that I think there are good reasons to favor that um, one is um, despite, uh, you know, all the problems with the status quo, um, it, 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 it's, it's doing something important or or it could be doing something important in terms of, um, uh, drawing a balance between self-government capacity, um, and, uh, other values. Um, and you don't want to, you don't want to, um, disrupt that balance unless the act, the indigenous community itself wants to make a change. And so I think there's a a pretty good argument for that kind of incremental community-led reform. Um, At the same time, you know, uh, I do identify some aspects of the status quo that are particularly ripe for reform. So even if you acknowledge that, um, you know, something like alienation restraints um, could be justified, um, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that we should have one-size-fits-all alienation restraints, and indeed, communities adopt very different forms from one to the next um, when they're given the chance. Um, at the same time, there are there are other features that are really difficult to justify, and it seems like they're just holdovers of the past when we uh, adopted a, a much more um, restrictive, uh, almost paternalistic approach to Indigenous relations, um, and so you know in Canada and the United States there are uh, requirements that where a, a, an individual um, land interest is transferred from one member of an indigenous community to another member of a community of the same community um, that there needs to be discretionary approval by um, essentially a government bureaucracy for that um, and and that that's hard to justify on this you know uh, there uh, you know, it's not the same thing as transferring it to someone outside the community where you have that potential threat to um, collective control of the land base. Um, so a, a rule like that seems like it's just rooted in a kind of um, outdated uh, paternalism towards indigenous people. And that seems particularly ripe for reform. And, and beyond that, the, the, the oversight role for um, outside bureaucracies in general um is very difficult to justify this idea that um indigenous affairs bureaucracies or in canada uh, or, or the uh, interior department in the united states have a, a role in sort of overseeing transactions and overseeing what's done with land um that seems outdated um and uh if you if you really value this self-government function The way to go would be to if you're going to maintain restrictions, say, on on transactions, that those restrictions and the approval for the for particular transactions should be done by uh, local officials, by by a band council or a committee um, or some other governance structure um, set up within the indigenous community um, rather than an outside um, bureaucracy, you know, uh, headquartered in a distant federal capital. right. yeah you know, i'm I'm not saying that we don't need restrictions. in fact, I kind of outline a, an argument for why they might continue to serve a a purpose, but it seems to me that um they they ought to be um, locally administered by the indigenous community themselves and indeed when when given the chance to design their own rules of land tenure um, indigenous communities do do bring that control locally right so they don't continue to you know when a first nation adopts a land code under the first Nations Land management act, it's overseen by um, either the band council or, or a, a locally set up um, a land management committee um, there's no longer an, a, a continuing oversight role for for the department in Ottawa mm. um, and 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 that seems appropriate and that seems like one of the things that, that it's really important to change in this area of law
1: yeah, I, I think I agree with you. And so on that, I think on that note, uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Professor Lavoie, for your time today in uh, discussing this paper. Uh, I think uh, it's a really interesting piece, especially for those that might be interested in legal reform in this area. The paper, again, is entitled uh, The Implications of Property as Self-Government. It's in the University of Toronto Law Journal. Uh, so, uh, Professor Lavois, thank you again uh, for your time today. We really appreciate it.
0: It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thanks.
1: And for our listeners, we'll be back uh, in February with our next episode of Running Meat Radio. Until then, uh, stay well.